The reading today is from Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to verse 40. That's Acts chapter 8, verse 26 to verse 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was seating in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot, and hearing the man reading Isaiah the prophet, do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I? he asked, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is some water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. They, then both Philip and the eunuch went down to the, into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Asiotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Thank you so much. Do have that open in front of you. And uh, we're continuing our, our walk together through uh, the book of Acts. And we're talking about it as the continuation of the work of Jesus, the life of Jesus, this time seen through and in the life of of his people, the church. Actually, when we come to this part of Acts chapter 8, it's quite a contrast. It's a huge contrast, actually, to what's gone immediately before. You find in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, Jesus has sent his Holy Spirit to empower, to send out his church, to send out his people, to tell the good news to others. And then suddenly, here in Acts chapter 8, and for the next couple of chapters, what we find is that far from being the massed crowds, the thousands, the tens of thousands that have come to faith, suddenly the spotlight is on three individuals. And for each of them, they are people on a journey. Now that is probably, I don't think this is terribly controversial to say, that the metaphor of a journey is the most overworked, underpaid metaphor of the English language. To go on a journey is very in vogue, and in fact, it probably makes some of you feel slightly queasy. It is, uh, it is overused and stretched, I suspect. But of course, the reason it's overused is because it's so effective. It works. It's actually a very good description of life. It's a very good description of parenting. It's a very good description of your workplace. It can be a very description of all sorts of things. And it is a great description of faith. And what we're going to discover as we uh, look at this particular person that Philip meets is that this journey is not just the same as any other journey. 
It's not just another bit of life, but that the journey of faith is one that we all need to understand from the inside out, and that actually as we understand it through the eyes, as it were, the lens of this story, it's going to tell us both about our journey of faith, but also about how we come alongside other people on that journey. Perhaps the obvious place to start is with this Ethiopian. Um, Sahay and I were um, commenting beforehand, it's, uh, 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 it's great to see. Uh, I, I, I was born in Addis Ababa, so I always um, go back to this passage and go, fantastic, um, lovely, to, uh, lovely to meet Philip's friend along the way. Um, uh, but actually for Philip, simply meeting this man wasn't about going, oh, I've now met somebody from Ethiopia. For him, meeting this man was about meeting somebody who could not have been more different to him somebody who was almost the absolute epitome of the outsider from the perspective of a Jerusalem-based Jew. For a start, to talk of somebody being from Ethiopia in those days was the sort of metaphorical equivalent of talking about somebody being there from outer Mongolia. It was the ends of the earth. To be from Ethiopia was to be as far away from here as you could possibly be. And as a black African in what was a predominantly white Mediterranean area, for Philip, he wouldn't have met very many people from Africa at all. On top of that, this man was not simply just an ordinary member of the public. It's very clear that he was a high-ranking um, official in the Ethiopian government. Uh, we just need to deal with this word eunuch. Um, I'm going to say it out loud just because it's one of those words that makes us squirm a little bit. Uh, it's not a word that we use in polite society, probably not a word that we use at all. Go back a decade or two, it's the sort of word that would have been used as a rather pejorative uh, nasty about somebody, uh, particularly of men, to imply that they had no sort of oomph, um, they weren't strong. Um, go back a few more decades, a few more generations, and there were some um, who were castrated in order to be able to sing uh, particularly high, um, and go back 2,000 years, and there were some for whom that was pre uh, procedure was done when they were very young, which meant they were then able to serve in the royal courts because they were trusted with certain things that no other man was trusted with. This man that Philip meets is as different to him as he could possibly, possibly be. From Africa, a eunuch, high court official, but also almost certainly a Gentile, i.e. not a Jew. Now, he's gone to Jerusalem for the feast. He's reading the book of Isaiah. He clearly has an interest. His heart is drawn to the Jewish faith. But as a eunuch, interestingly enough, he wouldn't have been allowed to convert to Judaism. The ancient Jewish law said those people were on the outside. So here is somebody absolutely on the outside. And here is somebody whom God takes huge time and trouble, to put it in human terms, to draw into the good news journey. In other words, if you ever need persuading that nobody is an outsider to this good news of Jesus, this is a great place to start. There is simply nobody that Philip could have imagined as more of an outsider than the Ethiopian. Whoever your friends are that you think, nope, this good news could never be for them. How much you might view yourself as being the epitome of the outsider. Actually, this passage says to you, yeah, you and the Ethiopian, you're both called on this journey of responding to the good news of Jesus. You're both called on this journey of faith together. So how does it happen? How does this story 
come about? Well, the thing that is very, very obvious is that as far as the writer of Acts is concerned, as far as Luke is concerned, this whole interaction between Philip, who's one of the earliest followers of Jesus, and the Ethiopian is God's initiative. It's God at work. It's God's idea, it's God's action, it's God's initiative. You see, at first, right in that very first verse that um, Kat read for us in verse 26, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip. Angels in the Bible, angel literally means messenger. There are messengers, messengers sent from God, and the angel comes to Philip and says, go. A little bit later, the spirit told Philip, verse 29, go to that chariot and stay near it. God's initiative. God is the one who takes that initiative. Um, Sorry, I'm only laughing because, do you remember last week when I was about to preach, my Windows machine decided to just do an update? Um, It's now about to try and do another one on me, and I'd rather it didn't. Let me just, excuse me one second. Those of you who are into Apple products, yes, you can now sit here chortling can't you? Uh-huh. Excuse me, don't talk amongst yourselves, but on the other, oh no, gone. Right, I know what I want to say, so. Um, just use pen and paper, Richard, it's much easier. Uh, <laughs> the fact is that God's initiative, both to send the angel to um, Philip, but also to send his spirit, just to nudge him to be in the right place at the right time. It's very clear, this wasn't Philip's idea. I mean, in your, all your born days, in all your right mind, you would never choose to go to that place to do what Philip chose to do. If you look at the rest of chapter 8, just the beginning of chapter 8, what you find is that Philip has been where you'd expect him to be. He's been out in the centres of the population. He's been out where the people are. I mean, if you're running an election campaign and you want to get your message out to as many people as effectively as possible, this is the absolute opposite of that effective strategy. You don't go into the middle of a desert on a lonely road and hope that an individual might walk past. Because even if they do, it's just one person. And what if they don't? Philip has been preaching to great crowds, seeing great signs and wonders, but God takes the initiative and says, Philip, I want you here doing this, speaking to this one person. But God also takes the initiative through all the coincidences that happen, all the coincidences that take place. So, for a start, the two of them meet at just the right moment. Philip happens to be standing in the right place at the right time, and it happens to be on this what is likely to be days and days and days, possibly weeks' journey from Jerusalem to Ethiopia. It happens to be at the very moment when this Ethiopian is reading Isaiah. Not just reading Isaiah, but reading that portion of Isaiah, taken from Isaiah 52 to 53, the Song of the Servant this passage in uh, the, the, the prophets where he's looking ahead to the one whom God will send, who will come and live and die to bring his people back to God. And more than that, God takes the initiative through the simple coincidence that this particular man is open to conversation. And then there's actually my favourite coincidence of all. Verse 36, as they travelled along the road, they came to some water. And he said, look, here is some water. They're in the desert. There is water in the desert. As those of you who've ever been to a desert know. But it's sporadic, unpredictable, coincidental. I love the way in which God's coincidences come along the journey. This journey of faith is not simply a human endeavour. 
neither from the point of view of the person doing the journey, nor from the point of view of those who are coming alongside to help them on the way. This is God's initiative, God's work. That's why we're being part, such an obvious thing for us to be part of this prayer initiative, Thy Kingdom Come, that starts on Thursday in the run-up to Pentecost, where what we're pledging to pray is to pray for those who don't yet know the good news of Jesus. We're pledging to pray for five friends, family members, colleagues, whatever it is, who don't yet know that Jesus loves them, that he's lived and died and risen again for them. And we're going to pray. Why? Well, because it's God's initiative. It's God who's at work in them. It's God who, by his spirit, stirs them up. I wonder if you think of your own journey, whether you're somebody who feels that you're just at the beginnings of exploring faith, or whether you've been walking with Jesus for years and years and years. When you think back over your journey so far, when you look for it, there you will find hundreds, thousands of times when actually God has taken the initiative. That coincidence of conversation, that book you happen to pick up, that church service you happen to go to, all sorts of ways in which God has stirred things up, stirred you up. But it's not just that. You see, God could have simply taken the angel and said to the angel, go and speak to this Ethiopian man as he's on his way home, tell him the good news about me, and send him on his way. Or he could have done what he does in chapter 9 with Saul and give a a direct revelation, vision of himself. Actually, what he does is he sends Philip. Because most of the time, in most of our lives, the majority way in which God stirs us up and helps us on the journey is to bring people alongside us. I wonder who's come alongside you in your journey. Some of them, as Linda's described, come alongside us through the books they've written or the things they've set up, the communities they establish. Some of them come alongside us because they're our parents or a best friend or a colleague or somebody at work. My dad came to faith simply because when he was doing his national service in the RAF back in the 1950s, one other man in his barracks was a Christian. And every night he would get down, kneel down, kneel down by his bed and pray while people threw things at him for fun. And this guy was just so determined just to pray that that witness was what brought my dad to faith from a place of never having known it before. This is a collaboration that we see between Philip and the Spirit, Philip and God. And actually, Philip only responds because he has some idea that that might be how life works. Otherwise, he'd be like Jonah, wouldn't he? Jonah also has this message, go here and tell them the good news. Well, actually, bad news that will turn to good news. And Jonah says, no, I'll go that way. Philip says, okay. Because Philip has that expectation that God might call him to be the called alongside one. Actually, very similar language to what we might use of the Holy Spirit. God, by his Spirit, calling us to come alongside others. And, and don't make any mistake of this, Philip has to take quite a risk here. He's risking the fact that he's missing out on the really important preaching to the big crowds really quite hard to give up the crowds for the one. He's taking the risk actually simply walking up or running up to the chariot. It does occur to me that if you're in the middle of a desert and there's a high-ranking official who is unlikely to be travelling alone in a chariot and some random bloke runs up to them, that's quite a risk. You know, the best you can hope for at that probably is being sent away with a flea in your ear, possibly a spear. And thirdly, takes a risk because he says, verse 30, do you understand what you are reading. How many people do you know that would have been willing, like the Ethiopian, to say, no, I need some help? Most of us, most of the time, say, 
I'm fine, thanks. Just like you do in a shop when the shop assistant comes and says, you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. Actually, the Ethiopian here is willing to say, no, I don't understand it. I really want to. That's because God is working with Philip in a collaboration. I wonder to whom you are being Philip at the moment. There's not a person in this room whom God doesn't call to be Philip to different people through our lives. We're Philip sometimes if we're parents to our kids, living out the faith of Jesus in front of them, walking alongside them on this journey of faith. Imperfectly, up and down all the time, but doing our best to be in collaboration with the Spirit. Might be a friend of yours or a family member or a colleague or a next-door neighbour. Could be somebody you randomly meet on a long train journey. To whom is God calling you to be Philip? And what does Philip do? He's open to the possibility God may speak through him. He's willing to ask questions and to take a risk. He's willing to listen. And then most of all, he knows that it's all about Jesus. You see, the wonderful thing about the Ethiopian is that he never joins Philip's church. It's great, this. You see, in chapters 1 through 8a, as it were, every time people are converted, they're sort of added to the number. In fact, that phrase, and many were added to their number. And the danger is that we, start, we could imagine, if we just read the first few chapters, that evangelism is simply about adding to our numbers. That it's about adding in the tens and the hundreds and the thousands. But here, this Ethiopian is never added to Philip's church. He never sees him again. It specifically says that. He never gives any money to that church. He never gets on a rotor for that church. He gives nothing in any way, shape, or form. He simply goes back to Ethiopia and, we assume, passes on the good news where he is. You see, the point of, of evangelism is not with a focus to, let's get some more people in our pews. The focus is, Jesus is good news. I want them to know that good news for themselves for themselves. Jesus is the focus of Isaiah's writing back in the prophet's work. Isaiah 52 and 53, the one who will come as the servant, who will suffer for the sins of others, whose death somehow will be justification for many, the one who will be raised to glory. And the Ethiopian perfectly reasonably wants to know, who is this man? I want to know him. And Philip is simply able to go, okay, let me tell you. The good news of Jesus is good news for every human being, from the most exotic and unusual person we'll ever meet to the person that we've known all our lives, and for you, and for me. And this journey of faith, it's not a binary thing. We're not talking about you're either in or you're out. Actually, it's a journey. There's a journey through sometimes a very particular point in our lives when we make a decision to follow Jesus, but then it's a journey from there of growing in faith. And looking around our church Sunday by Sunday, there are some people who, if you like, are at a stage of their journey which is about seeking and searching and finding out more. There are some who are in that process of saying, do you know what? Yeah, this journey is for me. This Jesus is who he claims to be. I want to know him better. I want to know more. And there are plenty too who maybe have been journeying with Jesus for years. But it's a journey, so we don't just get stuck. Our faith shouldn't be the same today as it was a year ago or ten years ago. And if it is, something's gone wrong. Actually, we need to be journeying onwards. And what the Bible says is that that journey is the initiative of God, but he tends to use other people to help us. 
So if we're thinking of you, if you're thinking of me, that gives me two questions. The first question is, who am I letting near enough to me to be Philip to me? Who's in a position to ask me difficult questions? Who's in a position to nudge me and encourage me in my faith? Who's praying for me? Who knows me like that? Am I willing to invite somebody in? Am I willing to do this journey of faith with them? Maybe as part of a prayer trip. Maybe as part of a home group. Maybe joining a life group. Maybe simply with a friend who you know is a person of faith. Who's going to come alongside you and encourage you in your faith? But then it's also the question of, well, who am I alongside? To whom will I be Philip? And how might God, by his spirit, use me? We're going to come to communion together. We're going to do it very simply, quietly, reflectively. As we do so, we come to the God who in Jesus was both the lion and the lamb. The lion who sits on the throne and king of all kings. And the lamb, just as Isaiah predicted, who was slain, was killed for us. And as we receive bread and wine or a prayer of blessing, what we're doing is receiving once again that good news. We're allowing God by his spirit to stir us up and to send us out to his praise and glory as we walk alongside others and allow other people to walk alongside us.